Out of the 93 Best Picture winners, one must be crowned the bestest of the best. You're listening to The Quest for the Bestest from Backlog Banter. Your hosts are Timo Nelson, Tucker Hazel, Tanner Dykstra, and Abram Buner. You can find more of our content on YouTube and Twitter at Backlog Banter. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Quest for the Bestest. It's the podcast where us Backlog boys try to look at every single Best Picture winner in random order and try to figure out where they stand on our great big list of Best Picture winners. The very best, well, that's what we're looking for here on The Quest for the Bestest. My name is Timo. I'm joined, of course, by Abram, Tucker, and Tanner. And today, we are going way, way, way back, almost, almost as far back as we can possibly go. Um, and going to talk about The Broadway Melody, by directed by Harry Beaumont, the second Best Picture winner ever, and Good the God. first Best Picture winner to ever have any sound in it. So, I think we will have a lot to say about all of those contextual elements, and I'm interested to hear what we have to say about the movie itself, because we're talking about the film and where it fits in history. But before we get to that, let's go to do a little recap about what happened last week. We had a great episode, if I do say so myself, talking about Green Book from 2018. A lot of very high-minded discussion. Um, but the film, if you're curious about where it ended up, not super far up on our list, 44th place out of 56 for the uh, the whole list, uh, with the average score of 5.9. So sitting a little bit above average on the numerical scale and certainly way below half on our list. Highly recommend going and watching that episode. A lot of good thoughts, a lot of good conversation and, and discussion in that one. And, uh, and well, I'm going to hand it off to Tucker with our featured comment before we dive in and get a little a groove on, a little Broadway shindig going to talk about Broadway Melody. Tucker, <laughs> featured comment. Thank you, thank you. Uh, today, here on the highlighted comment, I will read the Green Book comment from John Tour 11 who goes into Green Book saying that he went into this movie totally blank. Uh, He says, I had no idea what it was about. The way it tackled the subject might have been a bit bumpy, but it was still okay for me. I just find it sad how it was back then, and still are today in many ways. Mahershala Ali and Viggo Mortensen performed the hell out of what they were given. They were both amazing, and their performances had a lot of heart. Loved it. 8 out of 10. And John Tor, thank you so much for being the one voice of reason. In, in the BLB community, as, as usual, as usual. I mean, I, I'm not. Even, I'm not even counting myself in that. True. If Tucker is nothing if not unreasonable. <laughs> okay. Great. Great comment. Thank you, John Tor. If you want to give your thoughts on Green Book or any of the previous movies we talked about, or maybe even the Broadway Melody, should you uh, watch it and have some great epiphany. Leave it down in the comments. We love to read them, and we love to hear you guys' feedbacks. And it might just show up on a future episode of The Quest for the Bestest. Okay, Broadway Melody, let's do it. Let's sing and dance our way to stardom in the city that never sleeps, New York. What did you guys think of this film? Can you give me... No, that's, that's Las Vegas. Oh. Well. <laughs> the Big Apple. That, okay. This, this movie... That, that is going to be have... indicative of, of my ability to think about this movie. It may have well have been the the city that never sleeps, or the city that always sleeps, rather, because the this put one, me to oh. sleep. The city that put me to sleep in is what is portrayed in the Broadway Melody, because, you know, ever so often we'll we'll venture back to the classical Hollywood era, the golden age of Hollywood, as some may call it, and uh, you know what? We'll maybe we'll uncover a hidden gem from that era that you know many people our age aren't aware of. But sometimes 
we're digging up a really, really boring and in some ways poorly made film that doesn't really hold up in a lot of ways. And I think that's what we've come across in the Broadway melody. Uh, Tanner, I, I could not have put it better myself. Yeah. Yeah. The, this movie is fascinating for a couple reasons, but none of them are good. Uh, <laughs> I, I, when I'm thinking about this film and the fact that this is probably one of the least popular and well-known Best Picture winners. I mean, I, I would say pretty easily. Mo most Best Picture winners have some amount of notoriety, but this film exists as... Yeah, it, it was the second movie to win Best Picture, but that's really the only thing it has going for it. Um, And I think going into this conversation, we, we've got a little bit of time crunch. We've got a little bit of stuff going on in the background. We had to reschedule. But this, I don't, how long is this conversation even going to be? What kind, of, what kind of stuff do we have to talk about with the Broadway melody? People always starts with a classic thing of, oh, we've got a very interesting movie today. And I was really hoping he would just come out and be like, we don't have an interesting movie today. Because that's, that's the <laughs> first frankly. thought in my head. <laughs> Abram. It, I, so, okay. So, so sometimes I watch these movies for Quest in two parts. Busy with school, whatever. And so mm -hmm. I started this film late one night. And I'm like, you know, I got, to an, I got an hour into it. I'm like, this is Sunday night. Gonna, gonna call a night here, I'll finish it in the morning. I forgot that I hadn't finished this movie until this afternoon. And I think that's emblematic of this movie's entire ethos. It is, as the plot is happening, it goes in one ear and out the other. Because I do not think this film is unmemorable only. I think this film is one of the most incoherent and pointless movies we've watched this entire show. Mm. I genuinely believe that Broad the Broadway Melody is one of, if not the worst movie we've encountered on Quest for the Best. Wow. It's the, close. The, there, there is no. The characters have no coherent motivation. There is no plot here. It's. It is. It is very technically rough. I feel like I can excuse certain facets of that, like the very bad sound mixing, mm -hmm. because this was the first film with sound. So at a certain point, you have to contextualize it that way. But if we're coming at this from twenty twenty one, I think that this movie is absolutely irredeemable. I do not think there is anything here of of substance or value, mm. frankly. And I don't think there's anything that I remember about this movie besides from those contextual elements, you know, outside of like the plot. I, I didn't know that this movie took place in Las Vegas. I thought it took place in no, New York. No, it doesn't. It Where does it take it's place? Broadway. It's on okay. Broadway. It is why in New York. Why were you guys you yelling at me about the city that never sleeps is Las Vegas? Yes. Right. Oh. You said that this okay. takes place in the city that never sleeps. I'm like, no, that's Las Vegas. And you're like, but no, but. I, I understand what you're saying there. Yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. the plot of this film, as bare bones as it is, is obviously I think where we should start, just to give a little bit of context. Uh, this film follows the story of Hank and Queenie Mahoney, two performing sisters who show up on Broadway with their their guy, Eddie Eddie Carnes. Mm -hmm. uh, what's his relation to them? I, it's really unclear. He kind of gives them money and acts as their agent, but he's into both of them, and it's really fucking strange. Um, well, and, and it's just their quest to try to make it big in Broadway, and everything that comes with that is the interpersonal strife that they have as, as they become popular and start to know people and uh, have to do certain things that they might not necessarily want to to make it big in Hollywood. But that's about as by the numbers of a Hollywood or actor uh, plot as you can get. Mm. And a lot of this falls into the categories of, sure, yeah, that that, that makes sense for a story. But uh, aside from that, I think the genuinely the only thing that this movie has going for it is Queenie and Hank are 
pretty charming characters. Yeah. I like their relationship. I think both of those actresses do a very good job with what they're given. But they're just like a sparkle of fucking glitter in a in a bucket of mud. <laughs> See, what's interesting about that, Tucker, is that there actually are quite a number of plot threads here. Sure. Now, I totally agree that they're, they're archetypal for this sort of narrative. Yeah. But it actually tries to juggle a lot of things. But it, it does that by throwing the balls in the air and then throwing its hands up in the air and watching them fall as they may. Because mm. I think the most frustrating thing about the Broadway melody is that for a, a linear narrative, it feels incredibly nonlinear because there is no clear progression throughout the entire film. We, we go from this plot about the Mahoney sisters trying to work their way into this show, the Broadway melody, to this romance, like, love square-ish where yeah. characters, relationships, and motivations are always flipping, almost just for the justification of entertaining an audience. All of a sudden, Hank doesn't love Eddie anymore. All of a sudden, him and Queen are married. All of a sudden, we're practicing for the show, and then all of a sudden, we're doing the show, and then it's a different number, and then the Broadway melody doesn't even quite show back up. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, this, it's this grab bag of vaguely related sequences that don't build on each other, I don't mm. think. Yeah. Yeah. With musical... Um, go for it. With, with bits of musical thrown in there, um, which, you know, the way I think about this film absolutely comes from that it being the first best picture winner with sound it being basically a silent film that has like 20 lines of dialogue added to be like hey look we can do sound um and then well ha i mean has they're, they're well, talking like, the whole time yeah they, yeah. they ha well they, they do have they have dialogue but the, it's it's i view this as totally it's it's a film that they thought was going to be silent and then they're like oh we can sure. do sound well, now let's do sound tanner i think that Maybe. sounds like an in for a bit of trivia because oh. uh, most people who saw this movie most likely saw it as a silent film as most theaters in 1929 weren't equipped with like sound sure. equipment. Like they, yeah. they would mostly just have like a guy at the front playing the piano, da -da 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 -da, you know, that sort of thing. But yeah, so most people in 1929 or whatever saw this as a silent film. And I don't think the sound adds anything. Well, actually, I hang think on it a certainly. I think it certainly makes the film more understandable. Yeah. We would not have been able to pick up on any of the story threads whatsoever if they were not talking. Because, and maybe there was a different cut of the film with more intertitles. But I think the, there was. The very sparing certain. use of intertitles in this well, yeah. would I make think, this film legitimately incomprehensible from every possible level. I think there's the, no well, sound. For obvious reasons, they don't put the, the intertitles in, this, in the one with sound. And the one without sound, they would probably put more, the, all the intertitles in there. But also... Mm. The musical sequences are are an interesting thing to think about in that in that aspect because like do they just do they just cut those out or how do you convey that in a silent film because this was also uh, MGM's first musical I believe because they had the capability to do this sort of thing yeah it's one one of the first musicals yes and uh, so I kind of wonder how, how that uh, how that all rung out for this, the people listening to the silent version but also if you look at the one with sound which I presume is the one that we all watched uh, musical sequences. No good. No no good. Very forgettable. I could not name you a single song throughout this entire thing. Well, I could. Yeah, I could as well. Is there one called the Broadway Melody? Uh, they I sing it like five times. What are you talking about? I don't know. I don't I, know. I think that speaks to a critical failure of this movie, which is the musical element of it, mm -hmm. which feels surprisingly backgrounded for a lot of the film, right? 
And so then when we get into these musical numbers, they feel incredibly underwhelming because not only are we either rehashing Broadway melody again, or maybe we're jumping to a different song, but they are not visually interesting. And I don't no. just mean in terms of the choreography, because I actually think there is some kind of fun choreography and, and, and set composition here on stage. But the film is really ugly a lot of the times. It does not play with light and shadow, black and white contrast nearly enough to the point where some of those wide shots of the stage, everything just kind of fuses together, which is, of course, partially a, a side effect of this being a very old film. that's tr We're trying to restore it. We're watching not a great restoration of it. But at the same time, the, the actual filmmaking did not help very much because everything is presented in white or a little bit of gray in these scenes. Mm. I think there's also a huge issue with, um, I, I said this to Tucker, that like in, it's especially evident in those scenes where like all the chorus girls are practicing or whatever, all their faces are like super washed out. Like you can't see facial features at all on any of yeah. the actresses or actors at that end, to that end in those sequences. And yeah, I just like, Maybe it's a poor restoration of this film, but at the same time, like, maybe that stuff just doesn't hold up. Because you can look at, like, um, maybe stuff with a better restoration. Like, I recently watched The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which very much does play with the different shades of blacks and whites and makes everything pop when it needs to. And, you know, and, and makes, and, like, it overexposes things when it needs to to make things look, you know, ghostly in some sequences. But yeah, this one just fails, like, on every front. And and it, not even to think about creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously, I was gonna go on to say talk about the sets and how the sets are just like super super bare bones. Like I can tell it's a set in a studio, um, and they're even in a studio set. They're not interesting. There's like a t a table and a chair, and then they walk around in there, <laughs> and like the camera doesn't move, and we don't have different shots for most of the conversations. Yeah. It's just us mm -hmm. watching them. Um, this film is very proscenium arch. We see it through the lens of, of a, like a theater audience and only very rarely does the camera get to move around and, and do interesting stuff or at least do the bare minimum because proscenium arch is like so below bare minimum um, nowadays and would become below bare minimum in like two years. You know, yeah. keep in mind that we've seen oh. the the 1930 winner, All Quiet on the Western Front, which does insane stuff with all mm. of these things. And that yeah. really puts this film into perspective, I think, when comparing it to that one, which is the closest year one that we've seen. Yes. Well, yeah. Yes. I mean, by one, so yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but I think a lot of this can be placed in context uh, it, and is why I don't take huge issue with mm -hmm. the staleness and lack of creativity in the cinematography because... Films of this era in the first, you know, three or four years of sound existing had to be very static because they only had one microphone that was <laughs> sitting somewhere on the stage and they mm. had to speak at it in order to capture their voices. Yeah. Uh, and so that really limited how much the, the characters could move. It obviously limited how much the camera could move because the camera couldn't... Oh, whoop, there's the microphone. Whoops. Yep. Uh, so, so a lot of that is is technically limited mm. um but when we are looking at this from the lack of everything else in this like if i was really engaged by the characters or the particularly memorable dialogue or the performances or or the story concept i would be able to put that away a little bit more but i think it is highlighted even more when you're sitting there trying to get a feel for the characters and the scenes like okay what's going on but then when you realize there's not a lot going on 
your mind zones out a little more and you're trying to see, okay, what's going on with the set design? What's going on with the cinematography? And even on that layer, it also fails. So it's mm. sort of a double hitter of lacking in both fronts that I think makes both even highlighted to be worse. Yeah. Well, the reason I disagree with you a little bit, Tucker, is because I just think that the, the movie tries to have a lot going on in terms of its characters mm. because we, we have to remember that these two sisters are in a love triangle with Eddie, unbeknownst to Hank, but at the yeah. same time, there's this guy, Jock, who's on the side going after Queenie. Jock, Jock Warner, mm-hmm. who yes. is, is literally Jack Warner. Well, yeah, Warner I'd like Brothers. to get to that in a, in a moment, but go Because ahead. The, the, the problem is they set up this complex relationship, but they just jerk you around for an hour 25. <laughs> there is no development or, or, or progression, let's say, of these relationships until... Sure the absolute last minutes of the film when all of a sudden we learn out of nowhere that Hank never loved Eddie and she was in it for the money and then all of a sudden Queenie loves and then hates and then marries Jack and then Jack tries to fight Jock but then Jock punches him and then they go away but then Hank is unhappy and then they're going to live together and then Queenie's crying and the movie ends. There is a humongous problem of writing and pacing here, which perhaps is a symptom of of this sort of dual release across silent and spoken film. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you're going to do that, don't write such a convoluted movie. And if you're going to write a convoluted movie, release it only in sound and actually carry a character arc throughout (laughs) the movie. I don't know. Uh, Very quick thing, because you brought up you brought up uh, Jock punching Eddie in that sequence. That is one of the worst edited worst cuts, the, worst cuts I've ever seen in my entire life. I, and like even then I I am I'm, I'm going to compare it to another old film, the very limited that I number that I have seen that does it better. Just look at like any Chaplin or Buster Keaton film where they have to like sure. cut to hide the, such. They have to edit to hide something or, or or like all that physical comedy and stuff. Those things are edited so much better rather than <laughs> the punch going like it, it's so bad that I thought my I was watching this on Amazon Prime I thought my video stuttered so yeah. I rewound it but it, it, it you thought your disc cut, was scratched it, it cut cuts yes. and then he goes he leans in it cut cuts and then he gets f- fucking flung back <laughs> out the door it's really weird yeah yeah. Uh, but uh, Abram also brought up uh, Jock Warriner uh, and I, I think there's another character who you know, we're slightly more familiar with, uh, or at least the character that he's supposed to be, who is in this. It's it's Francis Zanfield, right? Zanfield, yeah. Zanfield Dollies. Yes, yeah. Who is obviously a take on Florenz uh, 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 Ziegfeld. Ziegfeld, thank you. Ziegfeld. Ziegfeld. Yeah. But at the yeah. S- and I'm like, okay, so that's kind of fun that they're parroting these titans of the industry at the time, but also. Like, what's the point? Like, they don't make them out to be especially evil. There's, there's or no commentary stupid, on them. They're not. Or, they're not buffoons. They're not evil. They're just kind of doing the job. They're just kind of guys. Yeah. yeah. And, and even on that point, I I honestly didn't expect them to be huge character caricatures of these characters. But even then, they're not like famous. Like they want to be in Zanfeld's dollies because it's it's a good show, but it's mm-hmm. not like holy shit, this is supposed to be Florence Ziegfeld, and the Ziegfeld's follies are the biggest fucking thing since sliced bread mm-hmm. and yada yada yada. Like there's no leaning into that because we are following their story. Uh, but I do think that, and I'm sure this movie exists somewhere. The idea of following a, a set of actresses who want to be in 
Ziegfeld's follies and uh, go through the trials and tribulations of that and have to, you know, show their show and all of that. That could be interesting. But the fact is that we only lean into part of that story. Um, and while I do think the part that we lean into is the most interesting aspect of this film, which is the relationship between those two sisters, who I do find to be at least somewhat compelling characters, the fact that it isn't supported by the external concept of them getting into the quote-unquote Ziegfeld Follies, uh, it makes it a little bit empty. Hmm. When we're introduced to Queenie and Hank, I think that's probably the best scene in yeah, this film. I agree. Them yeah. moving into the into the apartment and their wives messing with the bellhop with each other. guy yeah. and, and making the plans and, and talking about their past and all that. I, I think that there's a lot to like about these two characters. I think where their personalities fall flat and, and their um, character arcs is in context of their relationships with everyone else and how convoluted it gets. But on the bare level of Hank and Queenie Mahoney, I think they're both actually pretty interesting characters. And I think they both do really great job, especially the actress who plays Hank, who is <laughs> Bessie Love. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think she's really fun. And, and the way that you get to learn about these two characters and their dynamic of Hank being the older one who thinks he thinks she's a little bit wiser, she's sort of the brains of the operation, but she's a little bit too headstrong. She gets herself into trouble, and then Queenie's a little more reserved. And everyone kind of thinks she's dumb, but she's you know she's always got her eyes on the situation. Like I think there is a really compelling set of characters there that are performed very well, but I only cared about that for like the first thirty minutes I was seeing them because after that I was like. Now they're caught up in all this horse shit, and we're basically just focusing on the men because, of yeah. course, this is the 1920s, and we can't just have a movie about women. That would Hold be on ridiculous. a second. Uh, and and the, like the misogyny just wipes their personality away, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that's really boring. Yeah, uh, Tucker, you brought up Bessie Love, so I'm gonna do a, I'm gonna do a quick in that she was nominated for best lead actress. I, I also think that she does a very good job as uh, as Hank Ma- as Hank Maloney. Uh, nope. <laughs> no, it's just her name. That's her name. Don't call her that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, also nominated for Best Director for Harry Beaumont. And, of course, this one, Best Picture. Yeah, I don't know about the director either. But uh, this is one of only three films in Best Picture history to win Best Picture and not win anything else. Uh, the other yeah. two being, excuse me as I try to Grand find Hotel. it here, Grand yep. Hotel and Mutiny on the Bounty, both of which we've seen. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And Mutiny on the Bounty is... That's a stupid... That's a te- I need to go rewatch Mutiny on the Bounty. I love that movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, it's fun. Man. Any other yeah. commentary on, on the Mahoney sisters? Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I out of line saying that I think they're pretty interesting? No, I, don't think I think, so at all. I think you, you're you exactly correct, Tucker. I think that a thing that we don't really pay attention to nowadays, um, but they their voices are pretty good, too. They're, they have different sounding voices, just the way that the, their vocal quality is. Um, I think that helps helps them out in the. They don't they don't sound like you would exp- as as actresses moved on later in later years to have this. What is it like transatlantic accent? That that yeah. like way of speaking the Hollywood the Broadway way of speaking. They don't have that in this, which is just. Mm. I think it's interesting, um, for lack of a better word, and in in its difference. You know, it's not mm-hmm. it's not like the other ones that would come later, um, and so. Sure. I, I find that that is, it's not, it's kind of a neutral point. It's not a great bonus and it's not a great detriment either. I like their voices yeah. and I can hear them most of the time. Most of the time. <laughs> Abram, yeah. anything Abram, to add? 
I just don't think they're very good characters, oh. but but it, it doesn't come from the introduction as much as the fact that nothing happens with them, and when things do, it undercuts who they are, I think, in a lot of ways. I mean, effectively, Queenie becomes... Well, well let's, let's put it this way. The, 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 the dynamic established is that Hank has the ability, Queenie has the looks, right? Mm-hmm. But then Queenie gets pursued for her looks, and then... All of a sudden, Hank is like, but you need somebody who's going to love you for you. But even Hank doesn't even love Queenie for Queenie in the context of how they're established, what their strengths are. I just think that this is not a... It, and that's an interesting thing that maybe Hank and Queenie would have to confront with each other. But this isn't a screenplay that has any interest in confronting anything below a plot level. I don't even think yeah. on a plot level it confronts anything that in a non-circuitous manner. And because of that, it just feels like somebody scrawled like on a cocktail napkin when they're having dinner <laughs> planning the, the Broadway melody. Hank, headstrong, queenie, pretty, and exploited. Mm-hmm. And then nothing happened from there. And I just think that that is... I, I think that the script and the inability to communicate a character arc or a or plot tension or anything is the biggest thing defeating the film. Yeah. Because, yeah. yes, the, the audio mixing is very poor. It's very hard to understand people sometimes. The audio peaks and is blown out quite often. The cinematography is not very good. But I think really think it's the script that makes this all so much worse because it just becomes nothing at all to latch on to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the writing of a, of a film is really, like, can be, like, the most timeless aspect because other things are visually dated, but you can latch on to any story from any time period. Uh, but yeah, I think I think the heart of the issue here is that writing for uh, for Hank and Queenie. Because, you know, uh, as I, I agree with Tucker, their introduction, uh, I think Anita Page and Bessie Love have very good chemistry. I, I would venture to say that maybe they weren't given... Maybe they were given a script for that introduction scene, but, like, I venture to say that, like, maybe they just kind of had, like, a little back and forth sort of thing. Because awesome. I think that I think their chemistry is good, and the right the character writing and the script writing for the rest of the movie on just falls so many rungs of 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 quality below that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I I really don't have a whole lot more to add about about the characters in that. Mm. It's so uninteresting. And and as a result of the script being fairly nonsensical, that I was just, I just totally gave up trying to like comprehend. And I was like, I'm like, I am watching this movie, but I am not able to pay very great attention to plot level mm. events because it was just like it's just nothing. I was like, and nothing was pulling me in and being interesting. Even <laughs> even the music, I was like, I was like. Okay, I, I listened to the Broadway melody the first time it shows up in that sequence. Like, okay, musical sequence. Okay, you know, Got we're it. watching a musical. Yeah. We're into this, and then I'm like, yeah. oh, we just watched this shot sit still <laughs> for five minutes while they sung the song. Okay, uh, I yeah. hope they don't do that again. And then they did it again for the rest of the musical <laughs> with the, sequences. With the same song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, with the same song. I'm like, oh. Uh, I, the one thing I have to say about the characters is is our good boy Eddie Carnes, mm. who is possibly the least interesting best picture character I've ever encountered. He is such a nothing weenie of a person. Like he just sits there and makes these fucking faces at things and like comes in and he's like, no, but I I, I want to be in charge here. I, I, I want things to be this way. And no one gives a shit and no one listens to him and he doesn't have like 
charisma or power in scenes. Like, everything about this guy and, and frankly, his performance as well and the writing of him leads me to really dislike this character. Yeah. Not because he's an asshole. I mean, he's not nice, but, like, he's just so lame. Like, yeah. He's possibly one of the lamest characters I've ever watched on I think, film. I think what's funny about that is, if, if we... Tucker brought up, you know, the misogynistic uh, overwashing of uh, of Queenie and Hank, is that uh, this guy is just, like, a, a wet blanket loser for the entire thing, and then he, like, he just, like, can kind of continues to fail upwards. Like, he just gloms on to Queenie and Hank as they as they climb the climb the ladder of Broadway and become part of uh the Broadway melody and then he continues failing continues failing uh realizes in like the last whatever 15 minutes like Abram said that like oh I should resolve the love triangle or whatever fails to assert himself to Jock well, Warren. he doesn't realize that oh Hank like literally slaps it into him oh yeah she's like no she tells him I don't like you you should marry Queenie what the fuck are you doing and then he's like Oh, okay. Uh, she, and then he scurry, he's fucking screws off into the shadows to go yeah. tell Queenie he's she, hot, got the hots for her. She tells him the lesson he is supposed to learn. He fails yeah. to come through on it when he gets socked in the face by Jock Warriner. And then he just gets married in the end and everything ends up happy for Eddie. With a weird time cut as yeah, well. exactly. Like, we don't see the wedding. We don't see them confronting the fact that they have you know, sort of pushed the sister to the wayside. Like there's, there's elements of that that could be interesting story-wise, but they're just like, boink. Oh yeah. We've, uh, we just got back from our honeymoon. honeymoon. Mm -hmm. How's it going guys? Uh, now you're going to live with us, Hank. You're going to live with us. You're going to live with us. And it's like, we had, it's really jarring to have to sort of recontextualize yourself in the next scene mm -hmm. because they skip so much information that you're like, Oh, okay. All oh, right. I got to like readapt to this yeah. dynamic. Yeah, it's it's wild. I guess yeah, but my point is that you know he learns nothing, he does not grow at all, but he still gets a happy ending at the end. <laughs> yeah, and he is a he's a he's a wet sock of a character. Yeah, as a, he's very spineless, very spineless. Yeah, yeah uh, that's. That, uh, I mean, I I don't even know how many besides from from Jacques, uh, or Jock. How did how is his J O C K? Yeah, it's I know Jock. Jock. No, but his last like name strap. Warrener. Warrener. <laughs> Uh-huh. Man, yeah. that's a cheesy rip-off name. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's yeah. any other characters in the film that are even worth really talking about. Like, Xanfield is in the film. What about Uncle Jed? Uncle Jed, I mean, oh, <laughs> it's just like these characters, like, zero impact. They're like, they're uh, like, Uncle, Jed, Uncle Jed's whole thing is, he stutters. He stutters, yeah, he can't, he can't finish a sentence. Boy, howdy, is it funny. We're forgetting one major character. Who's okay. Yeah. We're forgetting the... Jock's drunk friend. Oh, oh dude. Unconscious. Unconscious. Back okay, I loved Unconscious. He's awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, you brought up Unconscious, Abram, and uh, I, I want to get into some of the pre-Hays Code elements of this movie because uh, Tucker and I recognized a certain little scene because it's uh used in the documentary, a very good documentary, called The Celluloid Closet, which is about, you know, the history of the representations of LGBTQ plus uh, characters throughout film history. And uh, this film does have, you know, as much as they can hint at it in 1920, which is, again, even if you can believe it, scaled back under the Hays Code. Uh, so I, you have the things like Unconscious. Uh, he sort of like, he, he sort of trails off lasciviously, lasciviously after um, the, the, the wardrobe guy, you know, the guy who's gay coded very obviously. Yes. yes. 
the costume who's designing design. all the costumes yeah, yeah. Mm. oh yeah yeah uh, yeah the, the inclusion of that character at all is another sort of pre-code element as well as uh a, I, I think they bring this up in the in the cellular closet as well tucker the um the choreographer like the main backstage lady she's like sort of supposed to be this butch lesbian sort of caricature so mm-hmm. yeah th- i mean there's that maybe like the first ever hinted at lgbtq plus characters in a, in a best picture winner yeah, I mean, the, the first we, there are hints. two. Yeah. So, and we haven't seen Wings, so that could have. Who the fuck knows? But True. yeah, if I, I mean, go through. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go for it, Timo. Well, I was just going to mention that that viewing this film in a, in a production code lens is is another way to look at it all. Um, I don't think it adds to the enjoyment at all, but it it does provide more food for thought than the plot mm-hmm. does. So. Yeah. yeah, a lot of the co- again, I think it's the context of this film and the fact that it obviously did. For the time, some people thought that it deserved the highest fucking award they could possibly get. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes the film interesting from that regard, but it, it's very little uh, to comment on the actual film, the content of the film, right. or the, the you know the story, the characters, whatever. It, it's it's the context in which it sits that makes it worthy of note at all. Mm-hmm. Does anyone have anything else to say? Because I do have some more interesting uh, firsts for this movie, but okay, uh, I, I can save those till for the end. Well, um, do you want me to do no you thematic me to, material, whatever? I think I, you I think that's go for it, Tanner, because I was going okay, to I, I was going to maybe talk about sound a little bit. But, you know, yeah. I think we covered it mostly. Uh, Bad. So hit it. Hit us with that trivia. Pro- I mean, we haven't seen wings, but I'm going to assume the first product placement ever in the Best Picture winner and maybe one of the earliest ever uh, I- insertions of product placement, the Lux soap flakes that are used that they really they really make sure to turn that logo out towards the camera. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was it was it into the sink, I think. Yeah. Like the, wash clothes. This movie was an advertising tie in and they used that, you know, that frame of the movie in like magazines and stuff to advertise Lux soap flakes. Man, I you know it, were were I in the soap market in 1929, I think Lux would be my choice. And uh, th- this is the final this is the final one I'll leave you on. I'm gonna um actually you guys a second. Oh. So we've been saying oh it's the second best picture winner, the second best picture winner. Um actually there isn't there is a uh, if I can get semantic with you, this could be classified as the first best picture winner because at the first Academy Awards they didn't have a best picture award. They yeah, had yeah, two. Yeah. They had Best Picture, comma, Production, and Best Picture, comma, Unique and Artistic Production. So this was the first one to fall under the over-encompassing banner of Best Picture. Yeah, which is why we have spoilers, Sunrise, A Tale of Two Humans, mm-hmm. that exists out in the ether that is going to possibly be included in the quest lineup in the future. Um, but th- that... Yeah, Captain Semantics. That's actually that's a pretty interesting fact. Yeah, uh, it's interesting that they turned that around so quickly. Yeah, because frankly, the idea of having two sort of different pillars that films can be judged on is is more interesting. Um, and I'm excited to see both Wings and Sunrise and sort of see how they fare. Um, because I think what this film points out to me the most is usually we get one of these fucking stinkers and we're like, why did they vote for this? But this is one of the most notable films from 1929. 1929 was a really weak <laughs> year history-wise. I mean, even looking back on it as someone who loves film history, mm-mm, like nothing. It's it's kind of scary how little there is. <laughs> well, uh, film his- beyond film history and into just history-wise, 1929 
did cause some problems in the money department. Well, well. Uh, it, it, a hard year to make movies in general, given that uh, like the entire economy like went into a huge tumble. And, uh, uh, and a great depression of sorts, as I understand. Yeah, one of one of the worst. <laughs> okay, depression. Uh, <laughs> it, it was a, yeah, the sad yeah. depression. But yeah, yeah, so like I think there's historical context to why this film was the winner. I understand why it won, and and all I can say is, well, I'm glad they don't make movies like this anymore. <laughs> they they don't make them like this anymore. They don't, they don't make, make them like, like they used to. Yeah, thank Good. God. Thank God. <laughs> Oh boy! Oh man! Well, well, are we out of are we all out of things to talk about this movie? I think I, we're out of steam here. I, I think, think it's I, score time. I think it's score time. Um, I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious Jack. to see what what the score is gonna I be. I remind myself. What oh I man! This. I I'm gonna have to think about this in terms of in terms of our other low numbers too. Mm-hmm. Oh man! Man! I this, got what man! I want. Man! This yeah! This film really sucks, dude. <laughs> yeah! Oh yeah! God. All right, I've got my score. Are you guys ready? I'm yeah. plugged in. Three, two, one. Oh, Ooh, I see. Oh. Okay, all right. Oh, wow. Holy moly. All right, all right, and the suspense is over. It gets a 1.8 average score, um, and that's going to put it oh in the in the 56th place. It is going to go above Crash. <laughs> hey, you know what? There you go. You know, and, and honestly, I think that's the perfect place where that's how, where I have it on my personal ranking as well. It, I, I, I would rather watch Crash than this because Crash is more interesting, but it's it's better than I hate Crash more than this. Yeah, I hate all the characters in Crash more when I'm not so, when I'm not supposed to. And I can at the very least say I would I can rewatch that introduction of the Mahoney sisters and not hate them, which I cannot, which cannot be said for any character moment from any scene or any second of the movie Crash, except for the scenes with Ludacris in it, because I love Ludacris in Crash. Well, oh, I God. disagree. <laughs> <laughs> um, the point breakdown for that 1.8 average score, um, starting at the top, Tucker gave it a 3.2, followed by Tanner's 3.1. We get to jump a good number of points down to Abram with a 0.5, and I gave it a 0.3. Wow. Um, the lowest ever score given wow. on Quest. Yeah. The, I, the, man, this, this film was... There are so many reasons why this film was bad, and I, I, I can never force myself to watch this movie again. I think that's basically <laughs> what's going to... And you don't need to. You yeah. don't need to, especially because your thoughts are recorded here for the internet and the rest mm-hmm. of history to see. That's for what time... I'm using this episode as. Yes. As a time capsule for me to put my thoughts out on the internet so I can go back and listen to it if I need to, uh, but really quickly just get my thought thoughts on this movie out of my head because I do not need to use my fucking RAM to store information <laughs> about the Broadway melody. Yeah, yeah. There you go. I am. I'm pretty happy where where, where this is going. Uh, that's this is where I wanted it to go. One above crash. Uh, even though my vote was not helping that, I think I think it all. Oh yeah, I, I'm curious about that. I mean, you you think crash is like six times better than this? So do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. Well, my my 1.6 for crash versus my 0.3 for this. Um, I think. Well, the I don't know. This film. The sound and the, the sound is just so god awful in this movie. Like there, there are scenes where, you know, uh, it's it's like not the filmmaker's fault, which is part of why I'm like ah, because like it's just the technology. The technology was just super super new, and they were just learning how to use it, and just and they had to re- they they had the question of okay, now that we have sound, what is a movie? And they're still totally <laughs> figuring that out in this you know in this film. 
Um, and yeah, they, the, I mean, the dialogue is nigh on unintelligible a lot. And so I, it's just like, technically there's nothing story-wise. There's nothing like, yeah. I was so bored. I was so, so bored watching this movie. Like it's hard <laughs> well, this is to, just, the most bored I've ever been watching a best picture. Winner. Yeah. Probably. Hard to, no hard to really it. describe well, how properly bored I was watching. This. I guess I didn't, I guess I didn't fall asleep during this one, but it could have had to do with the hour of hour of the day that we watched it. Mm, mm. This one is a lot there. We've watched, in my opinion, a lot more boring movies than this. I think this has the hour 40 on its side. True. Sure. And this movie does, this movie does move. A lot of things happen, but consequently nothing happens at the same time, which is why I think it's so, so tedious of a watch. You always jump into a new scene, something, but it doesn't go anywhere. And I think, I think you can make an easy case for, in my opinion, this movie being as bad as Crash, but for a different reason, right? Sure. I, I just think that it is so it is so far below by every metric that it just in a show about looking for the best best picture and using best pictures as a scale to compare to one another, it, this can't even get a full point for me. I don't think it deserves Damn. it. And and yes, you can contextualize that within history, but this is not a show about reviewing these films as they would have stood in in their respective years. Yeah, it's twenty twenty one, and mm mm. Mm-mm. Good try. I Sorry, think Harry make... Beaumont. Sorry, what Harry Beaumont. What makes this film most interesting to me is I think they kind of got a redemption moment uh, a couple years later because The Great Ziegfeld is this film, but leagues better. I, oh. I, I frankly, in retrospect, I think we were a little bit too hard on The Great Ziegfeld. I think that a lot of the elements of that film take the thematic and story concepts of what this film wants to do. Florence Ziegfeld is... Is so much more interesting of a character. His performance is so much more compelling than anything in this film. It actually has scale and choreography and set design. Like every element that this movie is mediocre on, that it tried to do well at, Great Ziegfeld just knocks it out of the park. And and while we, you know, our our points are still there, Great Ziegfeld is not moving up. I do think that this movie makes me appreciate great, what Great Ziegfeld did a lot more mm-hmm. because while that film dragged. It was still, in, it was at least impressive from a lot of, of regards. And this film just does not have that. Even even the choreography sequences are not that great. No. Like the, the girls on stage, dancing girls, are not actually in sync a lot of the time. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah. how, how do you, that, this is like the one thing you're supposed to be selling the show on. It's like quality choreography and like Broadway bop. Huh? How'd they screw this up? And they did. And it's really, it's really strange. It's a it's a weird one. It's a weird movie. My head is so empty of thoughts. So let's just move on and uh, and and find out what we're gonna do next week. Because uh, well, let's fingers crossed. It's better. Yeah, I I, I should have prepared some sort of vaudevillian sort of uh, wheel song for this, but I didn't. So the, your folks are gonna have to settle for the old regular. You know, if you don't, if you didn't get worn out on the Broadway melody in the Broadway melody. You surely won't get worn out on this. The, bo- the old ball and chain. Yeah. That quest <clears throat> anthem. Wheel, wheel, what's your deal? Give us a movie that makes us squeal. Is it on digital? Is it on real? Wheel, wheel, what's your deal? And <laughs> our number is number 29. Ooh. That's pretty far back in our uh, in, in in the time sphere. I have okay. I actually okay. I don't have any clue what decade this is in. So Tucker, will you tell us what decade it is? I shall elucidate. Hmm. Uh, today, no, not today. Well, next week, we will be discussing a film from 
one of the directors that we've watched the most of on this mm. show. This comes from a three-time Best Picture winner, which I believe is the highest number of any uh, one director to win Best Picture. Mm. Um, this comes from the year of 1942, mm. starring Teresa Wright, Walter Pigeon, and Greer Garson. We're going to be watching William Wyler's Mrs. Miniver. Oh. Huh. Interesting. Not, not, a, not a particularly famous film i mean i don't i don't uh dissuade you from feeling bad like of course you don't know about this film i think Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to watch but i even as a film history buff i know nothing about this film so william wyler is a good director and i've liked the movies that we've watched from him for the show yep it's another her and uh best years lives are both top tier yeah yeah it's another one for two it's a number world war two he's one for two and on abrams he's one for two yeah um, so it's a World War II film. Oh, you liked both those movies. Those are both good movies, you wiener. Maybe it's a, you know, in comparison to the Broadway melody. Oh yeah, top tier. So we are gonna watch this film, and then we're gonna come back on the show and talk about it next week. I can't wait to hear some thoughts. Can't, I mean, we'll see. This should be a, a a film a film to watch. William Wyler, great director. So can't wait to see what he's got in store for us. And I think you know what we've got in store for you next week. It's 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 this Mrs. Miniver from 1942. Thank you guys for sticking around for this review. It's a little shorter, but mm, you can probably That's guess why. That's fine by me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. We'll catch you next time. Peace.